Last Lord's Day evening, we began a series of studies that we entitled, Let Us Pray. In a series of five lessons we have planned, God's people pray, why God's people pray, what God's people pray, how God's people pray, and the fact that Satan hinders the prayers of God's people. We listed, and as we began that study, our objective in the study is that when the series is over, that we're more committed to praying. If we just renew an interest in prayer, there is an interest always in prayer, but if we just renew that enough that we have more commitment to pray, and we pray more than we have in the past, we're more fervent in our prayer, and we're praying for more things, then our time, of course, will be well spent. And that's what we hope to accomplish. In the first study last time, we talked about God's people pray. We noted three things about prayer and God's people. It's a privilege for God's people to pray. And it's a privilege that is peculiar to the people of God. And then we talked about the assurance that God hears and God answers our prayer. We're going to key in on that concept again this evening. And then the third thing we talked about is some examples of God's people praying. Tonight we want to turn our focus to why God's people pray. Why do God's people spend time in prayer? And why is it that they pray fervently? And why do they want to pray more? And two things we want to focus on this evening. And here's the first, the fact that there is a need to pray. Let's talk about the need that God's people have for prayer. It's not merely a privilege that I have. It is a privilege. But it is a need that I have. And we all have this need for praying unto God. And we're going to list a number of things that are involved. So let's begin. The need for prayer is the fact that God has commanded us to pray. God has told us that we are to pray. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17, we read a very simple command, pray without ceasing. And so we're to pray without ceasing, to continue to pray. In other words, on a continual basis, we are to be praying. And that is a command of God. And we could stop at that point and say there's a need to pray because God commanded. But there's more. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 8, Paul would write to Timothy saying that he would that men everywhere would pray lifting up holy hands. And so God wants men to pray everywhere, the text says. And so God commands and wants us to pray. Jesus spoke a parable, Luke 18, to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Never lose heart with reference to prayer. We're going to come back to that a little bit later and tie that with some other things in the context. But men ought to always be praying. So God has always said that men ought to be praying. In Matthew chapter 6, you might turn there. We're not turning to every passage. Time would fail us to look at every passage that we're going to present in our study tonight. But turn to Matthew chapter 9, beginning, or 6 and in, beginning at verse 9. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is telling the disciples that being in my kingdom involves a relationship to God, and he teaches them about prayer. And he said, after this manner, therefore pray. And so here is the direction, here is the instruction, you need to pray in this manner. And then he gives them a sample of prayer, and that is saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts as we forgive us of our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And here is what you ought to be praying. So God wants his people to pray, it is a command. Here's the second thing. The need for prayer is seen in that God is concerned about our wants and our needs. God is concerned about our wants and our cares and our needs. 
While we're in the book of Matthew, let's jump over to chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. And I want us to see that if man can graciously give, the point to be made is, how much more does God graciously give? So notice in verse uh, 9, beginning, Or what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, does he give him a stone? No one does that. Or if he asks for a fish, would he give him a serpent? No one does that. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those that ask of him? If I learn anything from that, I'm learning that God graciously gives and he wants to know about our concerns and our cares and our needs. Some have the idea that God is removed from man. He really doesn't care about our struggles. But those passages and others that we're going to look at suggest God does care about our struggles. He wants to know our cares and our concerns. Luke chapter 12, we'll come to this again a little bit later, that even the very hairs of our head are numbered. So God even knows how many hairs you have on your head. You don't know that, but God knows that with reference to you and with reference to everyone. So that tells me God is concerned about us and he cares about our wants and our needs. That's why we need to pray to God. Here's a third thing with reference to the need for prayer. I need to pray in order to find grace to help with our struggles. Now this is interesting in light of Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 draw a parallel between Old Testament Israel and our journey to heaven ourselves. That is, Old Testament Israel, they came out of Egypt, they entered into the wilderness, and some of them fell before they reached the promised land. And so the point is that we've come out of our Egypt, out of sin, we're in our wilderness making our way toward the promised land, and we could fall. There's going to be struggles and trials along the way. So let's turn, if you haven't already, to Hebrews chapter 4. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 and notice at verse, uh, verse 16, Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. I want to back up to verse 14 actually. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. That's what I wanted you to see. But in all points was tempted as we yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's going to be some struggles you go through as you make your journey toward heaven. You're going to go through trials in your wilderness. And as you go through those struggles and those trials, you come to the throne of grace. Because we're human, we're weak, and we're frail. We are struggling in our trials and in our journeys. And so we're dependent upon God for that divine assistance, that divine power to help us. And that's why we pray to God. We stand in continual need of God's care and protection. And that's why we pray unto God. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 16. The fact that we're to pray without ceasing implies that there is a continual need. It's not that I pray long as there's a need and when there's no need I quit praying. The fact that we are to pray without ceasing, men ought always to pray, Luke 18, suggests there is a continual need to God to help us with our struggles. We cannot make it without God's help and God's assistance. Notice in John chapter 5, 15 and in verse 5, just illustrating several references where we can't make it without God's help. We are the branches. He is the vine. We are dependent upon him. And so we need God's help. That's why we pray. Another picture is in Philippians 4 and in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is my strength. And so I can do anything God asks me, but I can do it through the help that is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 6. Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 6, 
that prayer and God's help is a cure for our anxieties. When we're filled with anxiety, with our struggles, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. In other words, turn to God and turning to God in prayer, in supplication, in thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known unto God. That's one of the cures for anxieties. And so we cannot make it without God's help. Well, here's something else. We're just seeing why the need for prayer, it is a command of God. God is concerned about us. He cares about us that we might find help in time of need, in time of our struggles. But another reason there is a need to pray is that God is the almighty God. Let's turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4. And notice in verse 8, this is that throne scene. The throne scene where the four living creatures having six wings and full of eyes around and within did not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. God our Father is the Almighty God. With Him all things are possible, Jesus said, Matthew 19 and in verse 26. He has the power, Ephesians 3.20, to do more than we ask. So whatever we ask of Him, He can do even more than that. He is indeed the Almighty. Now here's what that means. Say, so, well, I understand God is the Almighty. What does that have to do with prayer other than we talk to the Almighty? Here's what that means. That He has the power to do something about my concerns and my needs, whatever they may be. So I'm concerned about something. I have something that's weighing heavy upon me. God can do something about that because He is the Almighty. It means that He knows all and He controls all. If I pray for some sickness or disease and I feel helpless, then God can do something about that. He has the power over that sickness and over that disease. If I pray about the rulers of the world, about some un unsettling matters in our nations around the world, then I can pray to God about that, but He has power over all of that. As we're seeing in the book of Daniel, God rules in the kingdoms of men. So I need to pray because God, to whom I pray, is the Almighty. The need for prayer can be seen in that God is willing to grant us good things. God is saying, if you ask, you indeed will receive. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. This again is in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm talking about not only our relationship to God, but our relationship with man. And notice he said that ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Drop down to verse 11. If you then, we saw this earlier. In, uh, in, here in Matthew, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the good things to those who ask of him? And so I'm learning from that that God says you ask and you receive. And so God is willing to grant us good things. God grants what's best for us, even if the answer may be no. And we're going to see some examples of that here in just a little bit. I'm just trying to list a number of things that have to do with the need for prayer. Why do I need to pray? In order to express love, in order to express adoration. Back in Matthew chapter 6, let's go back to that example where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is here, it begins on the matter of praise and honor and extolling the name of our God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 1, prayer involves thanksgiving unto God. So it involves praise unto God. Prayer involves thanksgiving unto God. It's an opportunity to tell God of our love and of our gratitude and of our, awe, of our standing in awe of His majesty and His power and His might. Why do I need to pray? I need to pray because I stand in need of forgiveness. 
Let's notice an example of this in Acts the 8th chapter. Acts chapter 8 beginning at verse 20. Actually verse 22. We'll start at verse 20 where Peter said to Simon when he committed the sin of offering to buy the Holy Spirit with money. The text says that Peter said your money perish with you. In other words you stand in a, in a lost condition. And he tells him then at verse 22, repent him therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart be forgiven you. There are going to be times, like in the case of Simon, where we need to turn and beg God for forgiveness. And so I need to pray because I need to ask God for forgiveness. We need prayer because we need mercy. I need the mercy of God. I need the forgiveness of God. I need forgiveness that indeed he provides. But here's another reason why I need to pray. I need to pray because... I want to follow the example of Christ and of others. You remember in our study last time, part of our study was looking at the examples of the Old Testament characters, whether it be Abraham, be it Moses, or be it Daniel, or whoever in the Old Testament that prayed unto God, and the number of prayers that they may have offered. We noticed the case of Jesus praying on a number of occasions, and then we noticed the case of Paul. Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 21. Jesus left us an example, the text says, that we should follow in his steps. He left us a writing copy that we imitate and we try to make our copy just like his copy, like the example, like the perfect example. So in order to be a follower of Christ, I want to pray like he prayed. So I need to pray, why? Because I want to pray like he prayed. I want to be one who pours out my heart in prayer unto God like the, the Son of God did. But Paul said... Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 and in verse 1. So if I want to imitate the example of Paul, where he prayed for the disciples on this occasion and the disciples on that occasion, and upon every remembrance, thanking God for them, then I want to spend time in prayer. Let's go to James chapter 5 and verse 16. I need to pray because prayer does good and it's powerful. Now we'll come back to this passage a little bit later, make some more points. But James 5 and verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In other words, it does good. And so because it does good, and if that's all I knew that it does good, and I don't know what good it does, then I need to pray simply because it does good. But I'm more interested at this juncture, going to Luke chapter 18, and back to verse 1, I said we'd come back and tie it into the context. I need to pray because it does good. In other words, I need to not lose faith in the power of prayer. Luke 18 implies that men over time might lose faith in the power of prayer. That is, they pray to God, perhaps, and they get some answer, and maybe they pray another time and they didn't get the answer that they want, and then they may lose faith in prayer. So notice in Luke 18 and in verse 1, here was a parable that was uttered by Jesus of the woman and the unjust judge, he spoke a parable to this end that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he utters the parable. Now notice at the end, at verse 5, or verse 8, he said, that I tell you, will he avenge them speedily? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You say, what does that have to do with anything? I thought he was talking about this, this matter of prayer, that men ought always to pray and not lose heart, not become discouraged with prayer. He's still talking about that when he said when he comes, will he find faith? Will he still find men on earth when he returns that have faith in the power of prayer? That they still have faith and they haven't lost heart with reference to the power that prayer has. 
And so prayer has power. It does much good. So why do I need to pray? Here are a number of reasons. Because it is a command. Because God cares about us. Because God wants to grant us good things. He is the Almighty to express our love, to ask for forgiveness, to follow the examples. And because prayer is powerful and it does good. Now we're talking about why God's people pray. We pray because of the need, but we pray because of the power that it has. So let's spend some time talking, the rest of our time in fact, talking about the power that prayer has. Prayer indeed is a powerful tool. Several things we want to establish and let's start with this. Let's establish the fact that God answers prayer. That the Bible gives us the assurance that God hears and he responds to prayer. Whether I understand what his response is or how he does that is another matter. Let's just establish the fact. It's a promise and it's a fact. Let's go to James 5 in verse 16. We're not going to read every part of every verse, but get the, get the gist of the portion that makes our point. James 5 and in verse 16 said, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. In other words, it does good. Now we're coming back to that in a moment. But James 5, 16 says it avails much. It does good. God hears and God answers. Well, notice in 1 Peter 3 and in verse 12, we looked at this last time when we talked about God's people pray. And they have the assurance that God's listening and God's answering. And here is the passage that... that uh, 1 Peter 3 and verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. Now he hears everybody's prayers in the sense that God is aware that anybody on the face of the earth is praying, but his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. That's a promise that God says, I'll answer your prayer. Here's another passage that makes the same point. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's not all he says, we're going to go further. But if he just tells me he hears me, that's all I need to know, that he hears me. But here's what else he says. And you know that if he hears us, that whatever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we have asked of him. We have the assurance that God hears and he's promised to respond. So we've established the fact that it's a promise, it's a fact, God hears and he answers our prayer. But let's go further. Prayer does good, and it is effective, and it's powerful. So let's go back to James chapter 5 and in verse 16. James chapter 5 and in verse 16. The text says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It avails much. There's a couple of other translations along that line. The English Standard Version says it has great power as it is working. It means it's powerful. Let's go further. Here's the American Standard says it availeth much in its working. The New Century says it has uh, that great things happen that when a believing person prays, great things happen. Kind of a looser translation. The New American Standard says the effectual prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Holman's Christian uh, Standard Bible says it's the urgent request of the righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So what's it saying? It's saying prayer is powerful. Prayer does much good. Now here's what the text does not say. It didn't say that, it, that it, uh, it's going to accomplish what I want. James 5 does not say you pray for something and whatever you're asking for, that's going to be accomplished. James 5 did not say that. It just says it's powerful. It does good. 
It does not say, nor does it mean that he's going to grant what we ask. Whatever you ask, God's going to grant that. So you ask for someone to be healed, they'll be healed. You ask for someone to obey the gospel, they'll obey the gospel. But he didn't grant that. He didn't say that. That's not the promise. But what it does mean is it is power and it does good. The passage is saying prayer has force whether or not it hits our target or not. We're shooting for a target that we want to accomplish. So I pray to God that that might be accomplished. That might not be accomplished. But it still has power. I like Homer Haley's illustration at this point. He talks about shooting an arrow or a gun at a target. And so you shoot here as in the picture, a man shoots his gun at the target and he may miss the target completely. So you say, I'll tell you what, that bullet didn't do anything. Oh yeah, it did. It still had power, it still had force. It may have done nothing but split open the air. Or it may take the bark off of the tree and put a hole in the ground, but it still had power and it had force, but it may not have accomplished what he wanted it to accomplish. And so my prayer has power and it has force. Did it accomplish what I want? Did it hit the target? No, it didn't hit the target that I wanted to hit, but it still has power because that's what the passage promises. It's very powerful and it's working. So we have a powerful tool in our hand is the idea that's James 5 and verse 16. Now we're still, answered, still talking about the fact God answers prayer. He promised to answer prayer. I know it does good. Every prayer receives an answer. You say, I don't believe that. I don't believe every prayer receives an answer. Oh yeah, every prayer receives an answer. Let's go to 1 Peter 3 and in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Does that mean he answers some prayers? Does that mean he answers all prayers? What does it mean? God says his ears are open to our prayers. That is, gives us assurance that he hears and he answers our prayers. Now notice what the text does not say. It doesn't mean that every prayer is answered immediately or the way that we wanted it to be answered. The answer may be yes, or the answer may be no, or the answer may be wait a while. And we're going to see some examples of no. It's obvious that sometimes God answers prayer in the affirmative and says yes. For example, Hannah prayed for a child and God granted that. And so the answer was yes. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. And he prayed that it would and it did. The answer was yes. We're going to see some examples of no here in a moment. There are times when someone prays for something and that answer comes later than what they wanted. So the answer basically is wait a while. But that was God's answer to the prayer. Now, sometimes the answer is no, and that is God's answer. Say, so, well, God didn't answer my prayer. Maybe his answer was no. Let me give you an example of that. Paul prayed three times for the removal of the thorn in the flesh. You remember that, 2 Corinthians 12? He said, I prayed three times. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient. In other words, the answer is no. Paul prayed again, no. Prayed again, God said no. Three times. God said no, no, no. Perhaps you've seen something in your own life where you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and it never happened. God's answer was no. David prayed that his child would not die. You remember that occasion? Wouldn't eat while he's praying. 2 Samuel 12, 16 to 23, and yet the child died. God's answer was no. Well, what are we seeing here about the power of prayer? Well, God answers prayer. He's promised that. He says it does good. It's powerful. Every prayer is going to receive an answer, but sometimes the answer is no. That doesn't mean prayer is not powerful. It just means God's answer to that was no. 
And I've got to accept that. Let's shift gears. We're still talking about the power of prayer. God answers prayer, but let's consider the fact that God is in control. We've seen this repeatedly in the prophets. We're seeing it in Daniel on Sunday morning. But I need to understand, if I'm going to understand the power of prayer and what God does in prayer, that God indeed is in control. God is personally involved in the operation of the universe now. I think sometimes people have the concept, some of us may not remember the old wind-up clocks that you wind up and then let them run, that God sets the universe like winding up a clock and then he just turns it loose and lets it operate and he doesn't touch it at all. He's not involved. He's not personally involved in the operation of the universe. And that's not the picture the Bible gives us. Let's see the principle that God is personally involved in the operation of the universe now. Let's start in Acts 17. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 now. Now what is Acts 17 about? This is the sermon on Mars Hill. As Paul preaches concerning their ignorance of the one true and the living God. And here's what he says about that one true and living God. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made of one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he be not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of one, your own prophets have said, for we are his offspring. Now that's enough to establish what we're going to learn from this text. What I learned from this text is God gives breath to all. That is, every breath that you have, God gives that to you. I learned that God has determined the times of the people. I learned from that same context that God controls the bounds of their habitation, and in him we live and we move. And all I'm wanting us to see is that God is personally involved in the operation of the universe. God is in control of man. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. This is a passage talking about the uh, deity of Christ, how that he is preeminent in all things. In Colossians 1 in verse 17, for he is before all things and in him all things consist. What's he telling us about Christ? One of the things that makes him preeminent that he, he existed before all things, before the world was created. And by him all things consist. What is it that keeps the world operating and functioning? And the moon and the stars and the planets and the earth and every the sun and all the earth and all the galaxies doing what they do. What keeps all of that going? By him all things consist. He's involved in the operation of the universe. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 3. Now this is going to help us when we get this fixed in our mind, though we already know it, if we bring it to the forefront of our mind that God is personally involved in the operation of the universe, that helps me to understand what prayer can do. Go to Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 3. Speaking of the deity of Christ and who he is, and he's better and superior than others, that who being in the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Again, what, how, how does the universe and all the galaxies do what they do? They do what they do by the word of his power. He is personally involved in the operation of the universe. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you don't have some things marked in the margin of your text, in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, this would be a good time to do that beginning at verse 6. I want you to notice three things. 
I want you to notice, first of all, verse 6 says, God created a world. In verse 6, you alone are the Lord, you made heaven, the heavens of heavens and all their hosts, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and all that is in them. Here's the first thing I see, that God created a world. Now, verse 6 also says he preserves it. This is his providence. He preserves it. And you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. God created a world, and God controls that world. Now, why does he control that world, and what does he do? That he might carry out his purpose. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord who chose Abraham and brought him from the earth of the Chaldees. Well, we don't have to go any further to see the point. God created a world. He controls it and preserves it that he might carry out his purpose. What a statement of providence. God is personally involved in the operation of the universe. Notice those three things. He created a world. He controls it to carry out his purpose. Number three. Daniel chapter four, we're going to see next week in our Sunday morning Bible study that God rules in the kingdoms of men. We saw that already in chapter two. That same principle, God is in control of the rulers of the universe. God rules in the kingdoms of men. Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth, Revelation 1 and in verse 5. Now this is a powerful statement in Revelation chapter 4. We've already alluded to the fact that Revelation chapter 4, let's go there in Revelation 4 and notice in verse 11, the end of the chapter. This is the throne scene where God Almighty is sitting on his throne and this is one of the greatest statements of God's providence. As we saw in Nehemiah chapter 9. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, power, uh, honor, and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In other words, they all were created for God's purpose. God created a world for carrying out his purpose. That harmonizes now with what we saw in Nehemiah chapter 9. God is personally involved in the operation of the universe. Now let's illustrate the fact that God is concerned for man. We're still talking about God being in control. He's involved in the universe, but he cares about man. If God clothes the grass, he cares for us. That was Matthew chapter 6 in talking about worry. If God will take care of the grass of the field, he's going to take care of you. He cares about you. He's in control of the universe. He's personally involved in that, but he cares about mankind. Matthew chapter 10, he notices even if a sparrow falls, there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground that God doesn't take notice of that. Well, if God takes notice of that sparrow and the very hairs of your head, then God takes care of you. He cares about us. And he's personally involved in the operation in the universe. Let's add another element to God being in control. God's will, and by his will, I mean his intent can be altered. I'm not talking about his law being altered. But God's intent can be altered. Let me illustrate that. You remember in Genesis chapter 18, turn there with me, we don't have time to read all of that, but in Genesis 18, as God was ready to destroy Sodom, Abraham made a plea. God had said he was going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham made a plea, what if there's 50 righteous souls? God said, I'll spare it. Well, what if there's 45? Verse 28, I'll spare it. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? God's changing his intent at the plea of Abraham. So I'm learning from that God's will in the sense of his intent can be all. God not changing his law, but he's changing what his intent was. I'm going to destroy them. And Abraham pleaded with him and his intent was altered. Moses pled for Israel, you remember. God was ready to wipe them out. And Moses pled for Israel and God changed his intent. The same thing was true with reference to Nineveh. Jonah and the Ninevites pled for 
the city of Nineveh, Jonah chapter 3, only 10 verses. You can scan through that and see the point. And God relented of the harm that he thought to do to them, verse 10 says. So what I'm learning from that is God's intent can be altered. God may be intending to do something, and through our pleading and our prayers, that intent can be changed. So here are three things that we've seen. I know God answers prayer, but I need to know God's in control. He's personally involved in the universe. He's personally involved in the operation. He's concerned about us, and his intent can be changed. You're talking about the power of prayer. That's powerful. When God's intent indeed can be changed. Now let's talk about how God answers prayer. Pay close attention to this point. And that is, it is not necessary to know how God answers prayer, just the fact that he does. I think I can know some of how God answers. We're going to talk about that. But I don't have to know all the how. I just need to know the fact that he does. So I may pray for something. You say, how does God do that? How does God work through natural means and accomplish that? I don't have to know how he does. I just need to know that he does that and he's made that promise. Well, I'm going to pray for this and how can God do that? I don't know how he does that. Doesn't matter how. Just the fact that God answers prayer. Now, let's list some things that we do know about. God does not do for man what man can do for himself. What do we mean by that? Well, I can't pray for food. God, give me, pl please give me the daily necessity. Give me food. And then I'm not willing to work. Man will not work, neither should he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 10. I can't pray for food and then expect God to just throw food on the table. God expects me to work. I might pray for sickness. Here is some tragedy that has happened. Maybe someone is bleeding profusely. And I'm praying for them and, uh, or for myself. And then I don't seek or they don't seek medical help. God is not going to do for man what man can do for himself. I can't pray for knowledge. God, give me the knowledge. Give, grant me the knowledge and understanding of your will. And then I don't study when he's commanded me to study. And so maybe I'm wanting knowledge and I'm praying for knowledge and I'm praying for wisdom and I'm not getting it. Maybe I'm not working for that. That's part of how God answers. God's not going to grant what we can do for ourselves. God is not going to violate human will. How do I know? Because man is still a free moral agent. Romans chapter 6. Here's the language of servitude. You've yielded yourself unto sin. Now you can yield and must yield yourself unto righteousness. That's the whole point of Romans 6. Don't continue in sin. Man is a free moral agent. We may pray for someone to obey the gospel like Paul did. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And yet God's not going to cause that to happen contrary to their own desire. Here's a person who said, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to obey God. And I'm praying they do obey God. God's not going to make them obey contrary to the will of them fighting and kicking the whole time. Because man is a free moral agent. God does not violate natural law. To violate natural law would be supernatural. That's a miracle. God can and God does operate within the realm of natural law. You say, how do you know? I can establish, and we haven't spent time tonight doing that, but we can establish miracles have ceased. The supernatural is over. 
But we just established earlier, God is involved in the operation of the universe now, which means that he's operating within the confines of natural law. But God's still in control. One writer gave this illustration. You've heard it before, but it well illustrates the point. You can be in the driver's seat and yet be within the confines of the laws that you're operating within. For example, you get in the driver's seat of this automobile and it's built up on certain laws and principles. What laws? This car is built on the law that if you put it in drive and press the accelerator, it goes forward. If you put it in reverse, it goes backwards. If you press on the brake, it slows down and it stops. If you turn to the left, it goes left. If you turn to the right, it goes right. Those are laws upon which it's built. Now, you're in the driver's seat and you're in control, but you're operating within the confines of those laws. You can't turn it to the right and it goes straight up. You can't push on the brake and make it go fast. You've got to operate within the confines of those laws, but you're still in the driver's seat. The point is God is in the driver's seat of the universe. He has established certain natural laws. God can be in the driver's seat and still operate within the confines of those laws, but still be in the driver's seat of the universe. He raises up kings. He brings down kings. He can heal. He can answer our prayers. But in how does God answer prayer? God may bless us merely with the means. For example, I may pray for my daily needs, and instead of that just suddenly appearing, God blesses me with health so I can work. In fact, he told me that I need to work, that I may provide for those who have need. And so I'm asking, God, give me food, give me clothing and shelter, and I don't wake up one morning and there's food on the table and the, clo the closet has been replenished with clothes. But what he may be blessing me with is merely help so I can go out and work and help those things. He's answering my prayer. I may pray for patience. I need more patience. I need endurance. I get discouraged and I want patience and yet he may allow trouble to build that patience within me. And I'm, I'm frustrated because what I need is patience and all I'm getting is more trouble. And what God understands is that trouble is building those patience. James chapter 1. I may pray for wisdom. And yet God may use an older person giving me some advice that I didn't want. I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> and that may be the very point of God giving us wisdom. You've heard the old, supposedly it was supposed to be a joke. It was a joke. But it illustrates the point of the man who was in the flood and a flood and the water was rising and he climbs up on the top of his roof. And he prays to God for some, some means of saving him, that he's getting him out of the flood. And a boat comes by, and they offer him a ride, and he says, no, I'm praying to God for deliverance. And a second boat comes by, and he says, no, I'm praying God to deliver me. And a third boat comes by, and he says, no, I'm praying to God to deliver me. And the water rises, and he drowns. And he gets to the judgment day, and he asks God, why didn't you save me? And he said, I sent you three boats. And the point is, sometimes God sent us our three boats. I'm praying for wisdom, and I'm getting annoyed at some of the advice somebody's giving me. And that may be God's three boats he just sent me. God, I was wanting wisdom. Why is this person giving me all this advice? It may be that's the one of the three boats God sent me. God, I want patience, and all I get is more trouble. God's saying, I'm sending you three boats. Where were you? Why didn't you take advantage of that? God may just simply be supplying the means. 
How does God answer prayer? Well, I don't have to know, but I know this much. I know that God's not going to do for man what he can do for himself. He's not going to violate human will or natural law. He may simply be supplying the means. God answers prayer. God is in control. Why do God's people pray? God's people pray because there are a number of needs we have. God's people pray because there's power in prayer. What power there is. That we can pray and talk to the creator of the universe and we can change his intent through prayer. That's happened time and time and time again. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?